Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, we speak with Mark Otero. Mark is a veteran developer from EA and recently launched his company, Azra Games, last year with the backing of companies like A16Z. He previously led the development of EA's Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, which has over 100 million downloads last year, has generated over $1.5 billion in revenue. He has a deep history in RPGs and these kind of collectible combat-based RPGs, and he talks about how he thinks about designing these things, his philosophy of fun, the importance of fulfilling the fantasies of your players and power fantasies versus other fantasies and how those things develop. He talks about his approach to design and his approach to leadership as a CEO. And you'll learn about the differences between leading like Kirk and leading like Picard. And we get really deep here. He talks about his journey from his childhood in South Korea and how his struggles really inform his ethos of design. He founds a yogurt shop in Sacramento and some of the periods where he's bringing in his first people for his company are lining up outside the yogurt shop. Um, There's a really fascinating way that he attracted the right kind of people um, for his work. And he talks about the importance of how games like Dungeons and Dragons really created a safe space for him to explore and create and to give him the kind of power that he did didn't necessarily have when he was growing up. And so I really didn't know what to expect from Mark, um, but he he really impressed me uh, with his vulnerability, his deep insights, and there's a lot of great design principles here, a lot of principles around starting companies, and a lot of principles around what it takes to succeed at some of the top levels of this industry, uh, and a lot of really interesting insights behind the scenes of what it takes to found a company like the one that he has. So I, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do with Mark Otero. Hello and welcome. I am here with Mark Otero. Mark, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Uh, excited to share a lot of your lessons uh, with the audience here. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Um, I've been, uh, you know, you and I had a conversation several months ago, almost seven or eight months ago now, uh, where you came on and, you know, kind of did an immediate teardown of a lot of the stuff that we were doing in a way that I found incredibly enlightening. Uh, and so I'm excited to now uh, be able to bring some of that uh, to to the world. I, I, you know, unlike most people, I actually, I love it when people uh, challenge me and break down my ideas. Uh, it's the fastest way to learn. Um, and so I knew immediately uh, when, when, when your team reached out that we'd have a lot of fun things to talk about. So, uh, we always kind of start the same way because you've had a lot of success in your career. You've had projects that have raised, you know, have earned billions of dollars with hundreds of millions of downloads. Um, but uh, your origin story is actually a pretty interesting one. So I'd love to start there uh, and just kind of, you know, kind of bring people in on how you got started in gaming and and talk about some of your design philosophies as we go through it. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Um, you can call you me know, Justin. I really... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Um, you know, Justin, I really appreciate just your humility when we first met. Um, and I, I say that as another game designer. And that, you know, when people are providing feedback for some of my designs, um, I listen really, really carefully to what they have to say. Because um, those are the moments where I find myself learning the most. 
and you know you may not always agree with the feedback, but if you can walk away with one new idea, it makes the entire interaction powerful. Yeah, that's so that's right. Thank you for a lot of reader, a lot of listeners may not know that about you, but Justin is an incredible, incredible professional, um, uh, and that's that's just been my interaction with you. And so this is the second time we've met. A bit about me: I grew up in South Korea. Um, I grew up in a very small town called Weejeonbu, and the Weejeonbu at the time in the seventies were like the shanty town of um, of South Korea. And what that basically meant was that's where the you know very modest um, you know lower class blue collar people live. And so I was very grateful growing up in that area, Weejeonbu, because I didn't have very many toys. And so when I discovered Dungeons and Dragons um, <clears throat> from my brother's uh, best friend, my older brother's best friend, suddenly there was this vacuum that I wanted to fill with all the things I couldn't do in my normal life. And so Dungeons and Dragons became a creative interface for me to facilitate my fantasies. And that then eventually led to, you know, me focusing exclusively on designing role-playing games. And it's because my creation story started at a very young age, creating my own stories, then becoming a dungeon master for over a decade, creating stories for others. Yeah. Now I, I think, and and you'll you'll forgive me, my style here is a lot of uh break, you know, interrupting and breaking down the the components because a lot of us have the same narrative where we start playing with toys, we start making up worlds, we start making up stories, but they are very disorganized. You know, kids playing with toys and making up rules and breaking them yeah. as they go. Moving into Dungeons and Dragons as young as you did, I think it was ten, I believe, is what uh, ten years old was what I read uh, that you would, uh, that um, that structure and being able to craft things in that world that feels a little bit more on the unusual side what do you think it was it that drew you to that or how do you how do you feel like you know you kind of developed that skill you know obviously at a very young age for one thing and then what did you kind of learn as you worked within this you know designing games within another rule structure like dungeons and dragons yeah i mean it, it, the answer is quite boring um in that i was bored <laughs> <laughs> And I, I didn't particularly enjoy school um, because I lived in my head like all kids do. But perhaps I lived in my head a bit more than most. And and, and, and for me, because my, my life did have quite a bit of chaos, I appreciated the rule set. Because when you have a rule set, we all play by the same rules. And I found myself just gravitating towards that because I wanted that order in my life. Mm. and um, I really thrived. And so I didn't do as well in school, um, but I did really well in the world of Dungeons and Dragons as a player and then eventually as a dungeon master. <laughs> and right. so the positive side of that is I acquired a very high level of um, a reading level at a very young age. And so I remember when the school was testing me, um, they're like, man, you know, Mark really doesn't do much of his homework. He doesn't really pay attention in class. Maybe he has a learning disability. And then they tested my reading, and I was two levels higher than the class. And then they tested my math. It was also one to two levels above class. And it was because when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you have to master statistics <laughs> and you have to master numbers. And they go, 
then he's just completely unmotivated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> High skill, low caring. <laughs> and so there was, I didn't have this ambition or noble cause or this was my calling. No, it was just more of, I was absolutely bored by, the, by my own rhythm of life at the time. And I needed an escape where I can let my creativity flow, but within, within rules, within rules. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, it's a, you know, uh, a false belief in my opinion that, you know, creativity needs to be unrestricted. In fact, you know, restrictions, the opposite is generally true, right? Restrictions breed creativity, having to play within a specific box then forces you to innovate and helps give you direction. And so I found that, uh, to be true across every one of the designers that I've spoken with. I, I, so then I'm really, you know, so you, you've, you found a passion and a channel to drive your creativity, your learning, your intellect through Dungeons and Dragons. This goes on for, for quite a while. Was there a point there where you made a decision that, oh, this is something I would want to pursue as a career? Was there some experimentation with building your own things? How did you make that transition from, okay, I really love Dungeons and Dragons. I'm a good player. I'm a good dungeon master to, hey, I want to craft these kinds of experiences. It was in the mid eighties. Um, and in the mid eighties, I remember my friend had a Commodore 64 and, and I asked him, what is he playing? You know, what's his older brother playing? It was a game called Ultima two by Richard Garrett. And I saw that and it was the first time that I saw, um, a role playing game on a computer and you know, it was very rudimentary graphics. It was basically, uh, what it looked like a. You know, kind of like the, um, I don't know, you know, these are 2D sprite graphics where you had this guy moving around the map. The animations were very, very basic. Um, and But it still caught my attention because it showed for the first time a visualization, a 2D visualization of the 3D worlds I created in my head. And from there, I wanted to learn how did this guy named Richard create this software? And um, I learned that he used a computer programming language. And so I started going down that journey. So I begged my mom for years, you know, to please give me a Commodore 64 so that I could be a dungeon master and I can codify that uh, within a piece of software. Uh, and then I can continue iterating on that. And the software has memory, has persistent memory. I was absolutely fascinated by that. And it wasn't so much that I, I wanted to learn how to computer program. But it was more of that I couldn't find ways to get other people to create software for me. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was down that path that I ended up, um, you know, going to college and, and majoring in computer science and then, you know, taking some grad school in AI is because I wanted to know how to make games. But then, the you know, then life takes its own turns, you know, I'm in my, my 20s. There are things I want to do. Maybe I want to go date. I want a car. And then I, you know, I took a different career path um, that was very different than the reason why I went into uh, computer science. Um, what career path was that? I joined a startup, and um, it was during the dot com heyday in, in the in the late nineties, and uh, and it failed. It ran out of money. And, you know, I became a chief technology officer <laughs> at a very young age. So I was able to come help convince people to give us millions of dollars and then blow it uh, and then realize I was absolutely incompetent uh, with that type of responsibility, then joined a 
a financial services company called Franklin Templeton Investments, started there as an analyst, and then within, you know, within three years, ended up managing a department, a data department, data sciences department. And I realized, my God, I hate my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of, of of great things I want to pick apart in this phase of your journey because you know, for one, I can resonate with pieces of this. Um, you know, I went to law school, I was on my way to becoming a lawyer miserable and you know because this is the path where there was money there was security there was a kind of you know the things that society told me i should want and moved me in that direction and you know i wasted a lot of money time and 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 you know frankly was in a little bit of a depression at points uh but on the flip side i learned an a lot of incredibly valuable skills that ended up serving me and allowing me to be not just a game designer but a ceo and to be able to negotiate deals clearly you were part of a startup and went through this period of learning and actively raising capital actively managing an engineering team and frankly and this is the other piece that you know people don't recognize that that going through failure i think is actually one of the best superpowers you can gain right and so i'd love to piece apart maybe a couple of lessons from there of what was that, you know, what did you learn from the process of fundraising? What did you learn about your capabilities or, you know, where, where, where the failings, what was the, what were the best lessons you got out of that failings of, of trying to run a team there and, and, and how might they apply in the future? You know, the biggest thing that I learned, and I'm grateful for that, <clears throat> for that um, experience, you know, the biggest thing I learned about myself, which was the most important thing that I would need is you know when you're going out on a new venture you have to have a certain kind of crazy self-belief mm. in yourself and so what i learned through those failures was that i am someone who can do the hard things i am someone who can have the courage and to deliver hard things, whether it's delivering hard news to myself or overcoming an incredible obstacle. That's what I learned. And so that nugget stayed with me in my heart. And when I kept getting promoted um, at Franklin, and Franklin's a great company. They are a family-oriented business. They treat their employees extremely well. So there are all these reasons why you know, there should have been a correlation between my rewards and happiness. But what I found out was that the more money that I made there, now in my late 20s, my happiness didn't improve in the same way that my in extrinsic rewards improved. And so I knew that there was an intersection there that was off in my life. And I went back in time and I asked myself, Okay, I can do the hard things. So what is the next hard thing that I want to do? And I've always wanted to make games. And then I go, okay, making a game requires a lot of money. And it's probably going to take me three to four years to figure it out. So I need a sustainable cash flow that gives that allows me to have and work different hours. So I opened up a yogurt shop. <laughs> a yogurt oh, shop. Right. Oh, I didn't know this part of your history. <laughs> a yogurt shop. Okay. It was called Mochi Yogurt. And so I studied uh, yogurt intensely, all the ingredients that went into it, because I wanted to make the best yogurt if I was going to do it. And it just so happens that at this time, 
Pinkberry had one store in LA, which I never went to before, but I read about it and I agreed with, you know, their, their emphasis on quality. And so I hired a food chemist in Arizona and crafted my own frozen yogurt recipe and um, <laughs> hundreds of different iterations, testing it on my family. And most of it was terrible, but I finally landed on this recipe that I created called Zang, Z-A-N-G. And um, I opened up the store. I created a PR campaign um, beforehand. Um, and I had 400 people on opening day. And the yogurt shop was immediately profitable. And it was a smash hit in Sacramento. And, um, and so there was a moment in times where I had a crisis, where I had this incredibly thriving yogurt shop. And multiple offers for people to franchise it, to build out the next two or three stores. And I was tempted to do that. But I remembered that would I be happy five years from now operating 10 yogurt shops? Or would I be happier pursuing, you know, something I've always wanted to do? And so I made the decision to follow my heart and decided to take all the profits from that yogurt shop, studied game design, bought every single book you can imagine, read everything online, and designed my, my first role-playing game. It was about 30-something pages, designed the battle system, designed the progression system, and I had to design a game that fit my budget. And then as I was designing it, I was like, okay, I'm going to need about six or seven people to help me out with this. So I put up a Craigslist ad, and the ad went something like this. Hey, if you want to pursue your dreams, which was to make a role-playing game, and you never had the opportunity to do so, here's your chance. But let me be very frank. You will be paid poorly, and the hours will be long. <laughs> and so I didn't know how many people would respond to that Craigslist ad. But the next morning in front of my yogurt shops, I fell asleep in the stock room on the second floor. There was a line out my door of people interviewing. Wow. <laughs> and so our first artist was a take cake decorator from uh, Safeway. And they're uh, lined up graduated. outside the yogurt shop. This is the, <laughs> come to, if you want to work long hours, not get paid a lot, pursue your dreams, come to the yogurt shop. That's awesome. And I, and I promise you get a free cup of yogurt. There Maybe you go. Helps. Okay, now we understand well, the incentive structure. <laughs> <laughs> so I hired a team of six to seven people who had never worked on games before. And I handed them my game design uh, manual. I said, this is what we're building. We have three months to build it before I run out of money. <laughs> it took us six and a half months. And um, I had completely drained the coffers of mochi yogurt. It had about $500 left when the game launched. And uh, when it for the first 30 days, it wasn't looking good. <laughs> I was yeah. making like 20 bucks a day. And then suddenly, in July of 2009, the revenue went up to $200, then $300, then, you know, in the following month in August, $1,000 a day. Um, and then a few months after that, three to $4,000 a day. And by the end of the year, so we launched the game in June of 2009, at the end of the year, it was doing six to $8,000 a day every day. And then in the following year, it was doing twenty to $40,000 a day every day. 
That is an and, absurd uh, and incredible level of success for your first published design, your first new studio. <laughs> I I know that there's plenty of people that are asking what happened here. Like, how do you? What do you attribute that success to? How do you get that kind of incredible scale with a small team, small budget, shoestrings? What, yeah. What, what what do you what do you attribute that success to? So I felt the same way. Uh, in fact, I had no faith in my game design skills or the longevity of the game. And so if you played the game for three months, we ran out of content. <laughs> and, and the game errored out because it won't go past level 30. <laughs> Amazing. It crashed. And so we started creating content. I was like, oh, this game's not going to last for another three months. This game's not going to last for another three months. And the game just kept making more and more money. And I was like, okay. So about seven months in, I go, I just got lucky. I was deeply insecure. And I felt like I didn't deserve this success. I literally felt like an imposter. And I go, let me design another RPG that's 70% the same and 30% radically different. So I created this other game, this other RPG in literally two weeks, designed it out, and, uh, and then built it in two months. And this game reached success two times faster and was generating as much money as my first one so i go okay maybe i do know certain things about how to put these things together and that's when i started paying attention to what really matters for these type of games which would eventually lead to uh, what i call the philosophy of fun and the algorithm of fun and uh, but it took many many games for me to understand why my own games were so successful. It took years afterwards for me to appreciate that. And I think, Justin, you could probably appreciate what I'm sharing here because you may feel the same way with your own work. Oh, yeah. No, there is no question. I mean, first of all, I want to echo and underscore, you know, the imposter syndrome is real. I mean, not, not only do I feel it and other people feel it, like we all go through that period. And no matter what tier of success you're at, there's always that, that, that element there. And then I, as sort of an analytically minded person, have been obsessed with breaking down these principles. I mean, that's why I have this podcast and wrote a book and go through all these things. I try to like, okay, what, how do you break down? Like, what are the recipes here? And, and recipe is not in my, I'm, I'm really interested. Obviously we're going to dig into your philosophy of fun and your algorithm of fun, because, uh, you know, to me, there is philosophy of fun makes a lot of sense to me. I think that there are clear principles that apply algorithm of fun just the terminology, just reacting to the terminology is more challenging because I don't think it's as, it's very hard to get it to the mathematical formula. So many new designers, when I talk to them, want a spreadsheet that will tell them when a game is fun, when a game is balanced, what you need to do. This is how you make cards. And that's just, in my experience, just not, not possible. Um, there are, you know, there are, there's principles, there's formulas, but at the end, there is a kind of more art than science kind of balance to this thing. Um, so I'd love to, yeah, let's, let's dig into it. Show, share, share the wisdom, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I agree with everything you're saying. And the algorithm of fun is a recognition that there's a unique algorithm for your game. Hmm. And so I'll break that even down even further. And so first, I went on this long journey where after making, so I make a subgenre of RPGs called collectibles and combat RPG, which just basically means at its most, you know, most common denominator levels, you collect digital toys, 
you test your digital toys in combat, and then you can upgrade them. And so that's what a collectibles and combat RPG game uh, is. And so I've made eight of these in sequence. And so I can break these games down um, like few can and understand them like few can. And so that's not good enough. <clears throat> I had to understand what exactly are we doing here? And so at the topmost level, I asked myself, who do we make games for? Humans. Okay, great. Next level. What do humans do? You know, well, let's look at my own life. So if we were to time slice my life, it's got 24 hours a day, just like yours, Justin, and everyone listening to this podcast. Sometimes I watch HBO, Game of Thrones, you know, sometimes I use the bathroom, breakfast, I go to work. <clears throat> and then there are these other periods of time where I time slice in games. I go, okay, now we're working with at least some understanding of the realities. The next question that I ask, why do people engage in role-playing games? I had to go to my past to answer this question. And in the past, I had learned at a young age that Dungeons & Dragons, um, when it was in book-only form, was a interface to self-actualizing my own fantasies, whether it's the hero fantasy, whether it's, you know, I'm a great leader fantasy, whether it's a power fantasy. And so I go, okay, role-playing games then are a software interface for people to self-actualize their fantasies in a space that's safe and in a space that rewards your participation and maintains the persistency of your contributions within the world that you're playing. And so these things were all super important to me. And so what that basically told me was, I think I understand why people play role-playing games. Then I went even deeper. What's that mean? Well, let's distill it down. As, as humans, we can understand some powerful self-actualizing desires, which are one, love. Romance, right? That's very powerful. Mm -hmm. The other one is, <clears throat> how do I feel powerful? And <clears throat> as 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 a man who has you know who has who, who has who's been in this body all my life, I can understand that power fantasy. And and then wealth, wealth fantasies. And so I begin to distill self actualizations fantasies into single words that reflected a powerful um, desire that I had as a human being. And I can validate by going to the bookstore. And so if you go to the bookstore, you see love stories. You go to the bookstore, you see power stories. When you go to the bookstore, you see how to get rich, how to build your wealth, you know, the, the, the millionaire next door. And then I started to create something called the philosophy of fun. And the philosophy of fun goes like this. <laughs> if you ever watched that uh, show on um, on Netflix, I think it's called Lucifer. So Lucifer is, is the devil. And he, he has this power to ask people, you know, what is your greatest desire? And so the philosophy of fun is very much that. What is your greatest desire, Justin? Or Mark? Or whoever else? And 
<clears throat> if the answer is, I don't feel powerful in my life and I want to feel powerful, or I don't feel loved and I want love, right? <clears throat> the philosophy of fun asks this fundamental question. And so let's talk about power. And so if you're, if the response is, I want to feel more powerful in my life, I want to be the hero. I want to be beloved, you know, in this universe. Then the philosophy of fun goes like, okay, we're going to then design a game that fulfills the single aspiration as its main focus. It doesn't mean there can't be secondary and tertiary aspirations, but it's going to focus then on the power fantasy. Then the next question then becomes, okay, how do you fulfill that? And how do you know you're fulfilling that? Well, let's talk about that. And so if we're building a power fantasy collectibles of combat RPG game, how do you feel powerful? Well, I feel powerful when I can take my heroes and I can beat the dragon or beat the golem. It's basically a binary outcome. Did you were you powerful enough to win? Yes or no. If you were powerful enough to win, you then get the rewards. And what do you do with the rewards? You upgrade. Or you buy a new character to supplement your party. And what's really happening is you're delivering a power fantasy where as the player continues to win or lose, they are aspiring to become more powerful. Underneath that, to support that fantasy, you get graduated increases of generally permanent and persistent power that go up. And how do you know your power goes up? Because your numbers go up. And it you test it in combat with more difficult enemies. And so at a very high level, I've shared with you a framework that I've used in creating a game and seeing things for what they truly are, not what people tell me they are, but what they truly are. And so at a very high level, the philosophy of fun is a question. So when making, so let's, let's, let's use an example. So the eighth game that where I was general manager and the director of the studio in Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, I was not the original director for that game at Electronic Arts. In fact, I was not even on the list. There were two other game directors who were already six months building a Star Wars game. <laughs> but I had a sense that the games that they were building were not the right ones. And so here's what I mean by that. Star Wars, when we think of the game, I'm going to share two points with you. What is Star Wars using the philosophy of fun? What is the, what is the aspiration? When you ask that question, the answer that I discovered what Star Wars was, was that it was a power fantasy where the forces of light were battling the forces of dark and everything else was a story around that fantasy. So Star Wars was ultimately a power fantasy. The second thing that I learned about studying the Star Wars franchise is I took two weeks off to create my pitch for Star Wars. And I started playing with the toys and watching the movies. 
And here's what I discovered. I found myself playing with the toys more than watching the movies. And I said, huh, why is that? Okay, well, let me go research this. At the time in 2012 and 2013, the lifetime value of all toys was greater than the lifetime value of everything else within Star Wars. I was like, okay, this tells me that collecting toys and unlimited storytelling is more powerful than the movies themselves because people can create their own fantasies. And so I paired the collectibles and combat RPG game pattern, a game pattern with the power fantasy, and I pitched it because it was a natural match for Star Wars, which is a power fantasy. So I brought these things together to tell a story, a powerful story that was authentic. And so I know I'm, I'm rambling here, but let me give you another example of what not to do, where the philosophy fund can be helpful. If you're making, let's say, a Disney game, and you have Ariel the Little Mermaid as, as, as your IP, if you study that IP, at least from superficially from what I can see, it's a love story. It's a love aspiration. Love conquers all, right? And so you wouldn't pair that with a power fantasy or, or a power game design pattern. When you do that, you get a suboptimal return because you're not being fully authentic to how most people see Ariel from Disney. And so having the philosophy of fun is really a tool to help you understand what fantasy that you're trying to help self-actualize and facilitate for the player. I know that was very long-winded, but hopefully that's helpful. Oh, it's there's a lot of great stuff in there. I've been taking notes the whole time. I now want to kind of pick apart uh, and 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 dig into a lot of elements to it. So it was it was an incredibly great detailed walkthrough. Again, I usually interrupt mid uh, conversation, but you were doing uh, there was so much great stuff. I didn't want to do that. So um, so we'll take it from from the end and, and work backwards. Um, I I, I sure. hear and and underscore the sort of the power of connecting the IP authentically to the kind of fantasy the you know, the payoff, um, the, the core tension is, is, is the language I like to use of the, of the game, right? What is the, what is really the struggle that you have and what are you getting? Uh, what's, what does success look like for you? What does failure look like? Why does it, why do you care? Having those things pair is really, really powerful and important. Um, I actually am really interested to dig into this, this moment for you inside of EA. There's two other game directors working on this property. You're not on the list or you're at the bottom of the list. And you're taking time off to go and pitch internally for this. Like, what what's going on there? Like, what what is the? Because you know, this is a huge company. This kinds of this isn't you know you've you've demonstrated a you know kind of ballsy commitment and uh, and belief in yourself various points throughout your history. What 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 triggered you to kind of take that leap? How did you manage that? You know, within the company to then be able to create that space and build it for you. I'm just that's a it's a really interesting and unique position that you you know crafted for yourself that ended up of course working out quite well. So I'll dig into that a little bit before I, I'll circle back to more of the philosophy. Sure. The the story is quite humiliating actually um and funny at the same time. And so <clears throat> when my company was acquired, um there were two people who are really well there are three people who are really big champions of the acquisition. Uh, but at the topmost level, um, Frank Jabot, who I'm a huge, huge fan of, at the time was president of Electronic Arts. 
and he's one of the, you know, he was the first one, one of the early ones that I met. Um, and he asked me, Mark, and he said, his name is going to, this is an important part of the story. He goes, Mark, why are you selling your company? You know, you grew your company from two to 76 people. Your balance sheet is healthy. You know, you're making a lot of money, but why are you selling your company? And I looked at him and I said, Frank, I'm afraid. And at this point in time, I, I could have made a decision. I go, do I bullshit him or do I tell him the raw truth? So I decided just just get raw with him, even though I knew nothing about him. And I said, well, you're going to crush me. I said, you're going to figure out, you know, how I've designed these games. And you're going to come out with a bigger game and you're going to squeeze out. You're going to squeeze me out. And, and, and you know, I can't compete with you and your budget. And you can. You know, and so he looked at me and smiled. And then he asked me a second question. What's wrong with our, um, at the time, there was a Dragon Age PC game. And he asked me, what's wrong with this game? I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, let me take a look at it. And I broke it down, every aspect of the game that was wrong, technically, and I provided reasons for it. And then he finally smiled. And then we just... We both let our hair down and we just started talking. And so he's an important part of the story um, because within EA, you need powerful champions. So he knew that I wasn't on the director list to lead this game. And so he gave me a tip um, that someone within EA, I'm not going to mention their name, uh, who owned the decision-making for Star Wars was going to be at Lucas in San Francisco. And so I happened to be there. <laughs> and for a lack of a better word, um, I got on my knees and I begged for the chance to pitch my vision for Star Wars. Um, and it's because I was initially told no. Yeah. And so I begged for it. That's when I fell on my knees and I said, just give me a chance. Give me two weeks. Let me come back with my vision. And if you say no, I'll accept it. But at least give me the shot to present what Star Wars should be. And so did a bunch of research, disappeared for two weeks, and came up with the vision for our game, which was collect all the toys. Yeah. And... um past that and then i was asked to then present at what ea calls the key franchise review which we call the gladiators uh stadium and the way this works is that the gms and directors present their game and you get stack ranked top 30 percent you're good if you're in the bottom 30 percent you're gone if you're in the middle um, you're given more time, but perhaps less resources. So I went in there as an underdog and I presented to uh, Andrew Wilson, the CEO, and all of his executives. It's a room full of about 20 something people. They had apps where they vote on how well you did. <laughs> wow. I love it. And I went in there and fucking crushed it. <laughs> I had no problem, but just a vision with lots of data and facts to back up why this is should be the star wars game and so that was the abridged version of what happened 
<laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So there's there's this really I, I, I'm noticing a few themes uh, in your your kind of personality and how you've approached things that I, I kind of want to dig into. So you know you have this you know a rare uh, willingness to do hard things, um, a uh, ability to just kind of figure stuff out and solve problems, whether that be figuring out how to make yogurt, ice creams, and different flavors and formulas to, you know, starting up a financial, you know, do, start working in a startup to building this new structure for a Star Wars game. Uh, and then you also pair this with a kind of, you know, a, a, a humility here of, you know, the being open about your fears with somebody that's going to be acquiring you. There's, I think very few people would do that, uh, begging and, you know, being able, humbling yourself to be able to have these opportunities. That pairing is super rare uh, because both of those are superpowers in their own right. And they tend to be contradictory. Where, where, you know, and where do you think that sort of comes from? Or, or is there, is that something you consciously have cultivated? Is it just something that's just naturally come to you? Because I think that if we could get more people in the world to have those two paired traits, I think we'd be in a much better world. You know, I think um, you asked a really tough question. So it's tough for me to answer, but I'll answer it candidly. I never felt like I was good enough. And I think a lot of that had to do with struggling at a young age. And um, through through multiple tragedies, and so so I think the humbling came from there, and also from my parents, like my mother especially, you know, who worked multiple jobs, <laughs> sold on the black market in South Korea, where she was selling bananas from the military base there, which were illegal to sell to uh, the domestic um, population there. And she bought me my Commodore sixty four. It was like my mother's resilience to overcome and deliver things that had a profound impact on me. And where I came up, I never felt like I was good enough. Yeah. And so I have like this internal demon in me that pushes me so hard to do better. Yeah. It's never good enough. Yes. I, I, I thank you for being candid and for sharing that. I, I, I know for sure that a lot of people listening are going to be able to relate that. I know I myself can relate to that. In fact, I'll, I'll tie this in to two really, uh, two points. One, uh, related to Star Wars, I have told the same story through using the Star Wars lens, which is the dark side is very quick and very powerful, right? I, I've felt this for in my own life, right? That dark side of fear of not enoughness of that needing to prove yourself of that wanting to control is so powerful. I, I attribute a lot of my success in life to that force, but it is, it can be soul crushing. I mean, it can, it is not a, it's a recipe for success. It is not a recipe for happiness. Uh, and that being able to transition that later on in my career and something that's a continuing process of being powered by light side, by being powered by love, by wanting to create, by wanting to contribute. And that, that can also lead you to success. It is a slower path. It is a, not as a straightforward, but it is one that is more fulfilling. And I think that that, you know, I, I, I can't say I'm upset that I've, I leveraged dark side powers to get to here, right? That that was there because I wouldn't be where I am without it. I don't know. Uh, and, I, and I feel like that, uh, you know, I don't know if that particular framing resonates with you, but it's something I've, I've felt and I've, I've had to make a very conscious shift for my own well-being uh, and my, you know, deeper relationships with myself and with my family to be less, you know, work on that not enoughness. And it's an ongoing process. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and then the other point that I wanted to make, which is also really greatly ties into is, you know, you've shared a lot about the, uh, the sort of powerlessness and the struggle and the 
lack of resources of your youth. And when I heard your philosophy of fun, I didn't disagree with anything that you said, but I felt like you emphasized that part so much, that power fantasy, that wealth fantasy, that ability to have it, which it, it seems clear that comes from you felt that so strongly. We're unable to realize that in your life so strongly and role-playing games became the avenue that you felt that. And so your psyche is now, I, you know, I think our game design process is a it's a reflection of who we are, right? It is, we are, we are like an, any artist, like you're trying to create and tell the story and solve these, this thing within you that you resonates with other people. And so I, I, I kind of have felt that from you uh, here. And, and I don't know if that, that resonates, but uh, it seems like there's this really deep narrative connection in your life that uh, has, has, has really come to fruition in a lot of powerful ways. Justin, you are clearly a game designer. <laughs> <laughs> who pays very close attention to these details. Um, yes, that strikes very, very close uh, to, to explaining um, things that I've had a difficult time understanding. And, and, and the thing I would add on to that is I never thought I would be a father. I never wanted children. Um, but now that I'm married and I have a two and a seven-year-old, they have... They have given me this love that I don't understand, but I can appreciate and feel. And they are my light side. Mm. You know, I, I I tell the people closest to me that they they help heal me, and they fulfill a part of me that was missing for where I, where I didn't feel like it was you know properly you know uh, served or maintained like perhaps with someone who's more balanced. I certainly wouldn't call myself balanced. And now that I know a bit about you, I certainly wouldn't consider you traditionally. No, I think that's right. you and I have a lot more in common than we knew. Yes, yes. And, and likely it would let us down. Because <laughs> I can certainly feel it. I can feel the tone of your voice. I can tell um, that you understand. Yeah, and I think that um, now the... Uh, yeah, I, 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 that's part of why I love these conversations, the amount of power that we get from sharing, from communicating our own struggles and from sharing them and connecting with others. I think it just, it helps, right? This, this sunshine is the best disinfectant, this kind of, uh, the, and, and, and again, recognizing the power that comes from it too. And so I think now getting back into the, you know, kind of the, the nitty gritty of the philosophy, I think that the, in my version of of your philosophy of fun is the kind of I think there's a subset of player motivations, right? And I think that this idea of you know power or what I call sort of growth, right? That feeling like how do you represent power in games? A lot of it is not just the ab the ab, the uh, okay I killed the monster I did a thing I didn't do a thing. I think it's the uh, we have a craving to be better than we were, right? And so games provide us with this this path that's very clear right when i first start playing the games if you kill the dragon the first time you play it doesn't give you the same satisfaction as i start by killing rats and then i work my way up to that dragon and now it feels that that that, that feeling of like growth and progress and reward i think is such a critical part of it um so i, I just want to kind of emphasize that piece because i think that uh, you know the games i work on all the time sort of deck building games and and, and uh, really fill that same kind of niche but you want to when i think about design you know, and I, I just want to kind of frame where you you said this is, you know, there's a primary motivation you're looking for. It's either power, it's love, it's whatever. And I look at it 
there is a core thing your game does, right? What some people call it the core design loop or the, you know, the core game loop or what I call the core tension. That's the, the heart of what your game is. And that needs to be precise. But I think it's worthwhile to look at the games from a variety of lenses, right? How do you attack this from the people that want to connect and want to find, you know, a social group or they want to like find, you know, love or, or it's the people that want to just tell a great story and be immersed and lose themselves in the experience or the people that want to compete and want to beat other people and achieve achievements and, and kind of find their social status. Um, I think all of those lenses are valuable. Um, and of course the, you know, as I think your the lens you emphasize is probably the most prominent and most successful in games. Uh, but I think it's important to see all the different aspects of it. Justin, I, I, I totally agree with you. And <clears throat> usually when, you know, I have a tendency to explain things, I, I, I have a tendency to, to, to focus on one thing because, you know, from my experience, when I try to explain more than that, um, and that's not something I have to do with you. Um, cause you're a very experienced game designer. And you're correct about the nuances. Absolutely support that and agree with that 100%. So I have a tendency to oversimplify things. So there's less ambiguity. But I agree. The feeling of power is is multifaceted. You know, it's in addition to there being a strong mathematical and numerical component of, of the slope of the curve in which the player progresses as they exchange their time for activities is there has to be a sense of feeling of competency where they feel like to your, to, you know, to what you said earlier is that they feel like they're making progress and, you know, cause they want to be better than they were 10 minutes ago or an hour ago. And so that feeling of competency is very, very important. And, and the feeling of competency isn't single dimensional with the, with the, with the power progression curve. It's multidimensional in that. <clears throat> Power can come from knowledge, knowledge of the game, knowledge how to build a deck with strategy. But the impact of that strategy is power. And so the, the how is the strategy and the, the what is, you know, what you're delivering is the power. And so I totally agree with what you're saying. Strategy is a huge part. Uh, of the type of games that I enjoy creating is because those are the type of games I enjoy playing. Yeah. And so these are not one dimensional um, ideas, but that one dimensional idea was more to drive the point of what the spine is yeah. and how everything feeds and drives into that. Yeah, no, and I think, again, I didn't bother to interrupt you during your description because it's it's fantastic, it's super useful, and it gets, it does, it highlights really critical points. And I, you know, I, I, I dig into the nuances here because that's what's fun for me and <laughs> what's good to do with our audiences. Uh, yeah, no, I, mean, I can have that conversation with you because of your experience. But if you have that conversation with like a junior game designer, they're like overwhelmed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the point gets lost. Right. Um, and so this is great. I love these conversations. Yeah, great. That's that's clear. And yeah, me, me too. I've uh, uh, So so let's... Um, I want to, I'm going to cue in on one point just because of the, what you just said. Um, and then I want to start getting into your new company and everything, um, which is, you know, when you're teaching new game designers, right? So there's the nuances, there's incredible wealth of knowledge now that you've 
you know, accumulated over decades. And you've trained now large teams, you ran a huge team at, at EA, you've got you know, other, your other companies and what, how do you approach that process of training a new designer, right? You brought, you brought completely rookie people on to the yogurt shop with a promise of free yogurt, lots of hours. And now you've worked with, and, and I actually remember this from our first conversation, the, the incredible power of working with rock stars, right. And, and working with, inc- with great people who teach you and, and lift you up and you've hired people, I'm sure across the spectrum. How do you approach that process of, of teaching new designers and, and getting a cohesive team to work together? That is such a tough question, and I will attempt to answer it. Um, my general thinking on this has evolved over time. You know, so let me share first a, a leadership framework with you, and then we'll get into how that fits into um, how I'm thinking about creating a zero to one game studio. And so, if you watch Star Trek, there are really two personalities, two leadership personalities that stand out. There's Kirk and then there's Picard. (laughs) Oh, I love this already. (laughs) And they each have their own situational benefits, pros and cons. One is not superior than the other. It's only superior within the right context. And so Kirk is much more directive and Picard is much more influential and patient. And so Picard empowers, Kirk directs. And so in the early days of Click Nation, um, you know, my first gaming zero to one studio, I was absolutely a Kirk. A hundred percent of the time, there was no Picard. And as I joined, uh, when I joined EA, I remember they had a, a 360 review on me and, um, <laughs> <laughs> my leadership score is probably the lowest uh, as a GM and director, as someone who's very disagreeable, someone who's very directive, as someone who doesn't necessarily empower. Right. Uh, just also, give it give a brief give a brief description of a three sixty review because I think some people won't necessarily know what that means. Yeah. So a three sixty review is basically they ask all my peers, the people and the people above me and below me, what they think of me as a manager. There's a scorecard. A very extensive scorecard with um, with anonymous comments. There are a lot of unflattering comments. Let's just say, Mark is arrogant. Um, Mark does not empower. Mark is directive. Uh, Mark is not necessarily friendly. <laughs> a lot of unflattering traits, right? And so, I at first I was deeply offended by that. And, and I started to use excuses like, oh, who are these people to judge me? And it took me a couple of years to begin to internalize that. And I would say that my leadership style was more 75% Kirk and 25% Picard. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll probably be generous, okay? <laughs> At least that's in my head. I and, ordered Earl Grey hot a bunch. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> so now that I have children, I'm married and I'm having a great time with them. I made a promise to myself that I will, first of all, be more Picard and work with the best people that I knew that I had worked with in the past. So I handpicked the best of the best. And some were reluctant to want to work with me again because they had memories of this, of this 
dictator, this Kirk. <laughs> and, and some took more convincing and even bribing, some would say. And, uh, and so I was very, very deliberate in, first of all, respecting the creative space of these great builders and really giving them three to six months of just complete freedom to do almost whatever the hell they wanted to do to get it out of their system and to prove to them, to show them that I am here more as a professor. I will at times become Kirk when I need to be, but I'm more of a Picard. And, and so that was, that worked okay. That helped everyone. And so I became a teacher. I shared a lot of my frameworks. I had to reteach the frameworks about three to four times for the wisdom to sink. Uh, concepts like what I shared with you about the philosophy, but there's many others like familiar yet unique. Mm. Well, what the hell does that mean? Are familiar yet unique? Well, if you're creating a new IP or you're creating a, a new game, you have to first draw on what's familiar. You know, something that appears to be derivative, but then there's something magical and extraordinary that they discover. And it's because if you initially flash somebody with something that's just weird, they're going to be immediately turned off. And so I shared concepts and philosophies like that early on to see when they would finally sink in. And then I began changing my scale from Picard to now moving more closely towards Kirk to, to, to bring more constraints into where we're going. And so I, I hope that that answers your question and that a lot more patience and, and I'm very upfront with people. All right, everyone in about two or three months, I'm going to go from Picard to more Kirk. Mm. So I'm just giving everyone fair warning, you know, it's the right time. And then when people begin to feel the Kirk, they're almost kind of surprised by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the team that we have, they're so talented. Uh, they're so much better than me and their disciplines and their mastery. Like I am, I feel so fucking grateful to work with them, and I, I, it's just a great honor, you know, to 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 occupy the space and to occupy the space with them. It's just so great to be building with them again. So we're fifty three people, and over half the people in the studio came from my previous studio that I found. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, we have uh, our, our our company motto is you know, work with awesome people, make awesome things, help each other grow. And that yes. as long as I'm doing those things, I'm happy my career is in the right track. And uh, it sounds like that you've been doing that, right? It doesn't, you know, bringing these people over and, and, and continuing to learn. And, and and these are hard lessons as a leader. Um, you know, uh, the, there's a framework, I forget which book it came from, but that re resonated with me is there's a difference between a, a star-driven business and a systems-driven business. Right, this idea of a star-driven business, like, look, I'm the star. I know what I'm doing. I'm a great designer. I can get this done. Follow me, and we're going to be fine. Right, and then that is something that doesn't scale and it doesn't empower people. And then when you can create instead a systems-driven business, where it's like, all right, no, look, here's the frameworks. Here's what it is that I do and how I think about these things, and then empower people within those frameworks. Right, within the constraints. Hey, if you guys can play within this box, go. It's all yours. And or if you can convince me that the box needs to move, cool. Uh, and then you. And then, then, then now you can actually scale. Now you can train people. And then the hardest piece of this for me, and I don't know where this, how this fits in with you, is uh, actually letting people fail. 
when I see that they're on a track that I don't, I know where it's headed. I, I've learned I have to actually not get in the way and let them fail and learn, right? Obviously, if it's a mission critical company's going to, right? None, none of that. But like, there's a lot of room where you need to let people fail and learn on their own. And every now and then they're going to do something that you think is going to fail. I'm like, hey, actually that worked, right? But but the lessons are much stronger. So I don't know if you've, you have experience with that too, but that's been the hardest thing for me <laughs> as, a, as a leader. Uh, it is, you know, for most of last year, so we're founded in January of 2022. Uh, most of last year, I was much more Picard. And I've noticed, you know, I like the language that use about building systems. Um, and, and so the studio was building systems. Um, and there were many hits and there were many misses. And um, I haven't found the perfect balance other than I know, <laughs> I said this to, um, you know, our creative director, Noriega, and, you know, it's, it's great to see, you know, us, us failing in these different areas because it shows me that you're really pushing the boundaries of creativity. And, and so to embrace that, because uh, if we aren't making mistakes, we're probably not innovating enough. Right. And if we weren't anxious, it means we're not moving fast enough, right? Uh, yes. And so, yes, I know you know what I'm talking about. I do know. I know what you do. And so, I have not found the perfect balance, Justin. I do not have the perfect template. I'm learning it just like you are in terms of what I think is contextually appropriate given limited resources. The time frame we're trying to hit, the partners that you know were that that I made promises to, or the studio made promises to, we want to keep. And so I'm trying to manage all these things and juggle them. And it's not 100 percent, man. Uh, I think on a good day, it's 60 to 70 percent yeah. accuracy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's a great that's a great target to go for. <laughs> I've uh, I, I I hear that. All right, so let's let's dig into the new company. Um, let's dig into the premise. Why come back? Right, you don't have to do this anymore. You've had you know successful exits. You've made huge games. You got nothing to prove to anybody. Why start this company? What's the premise? What's the deal? Uh, let's let's give a let's give some context to people before we can start digging into a lot of the nitty gritty. So after um, leading Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes for Electronic Arts, what most people don't know is I stopped enjoying playing games. And I stopped playing games almost altogether. And I don't know what word we use for that. Maybe I was burnt out. I don't, I don't know. Because I don't think burnt out was the right word. I was just completely not interested in games anymore for a variety of reasons. And, and it took me time to heal. And I knew that I missed games because a few years after I retired from games, guess what I was doing? I was playing games seven to eight hours a day. <laughs> I was on multiple guilds. <laughs> grinding away <laughs> i was playing i was playing league of legends uh heroes of the storm x heroes war robots i mean you name it. i was just playing i was in love with games again and i and i kept saying to myself man if i were the organ of this game this is what i would do <laughs> this yeah. is what i would do yeah and uh really it's 
I missed, I missed it, man. I, I, there's no other word for it than I found my purpose in life and I am oddly and strangely above average in it. And I missed it and I wanted to come back. I missed working with creatives. I missed working with brilliant creative people. I, I also miss sometimes the glory of overcoming pain. Yeah. Maybe that's my own thing. <laughs> and oh. so I missed all of it. And so there was this gentleman named Nathan Fong, and he was one of my early hires. We made eight games together. And he would visit me every year on clockwork. He would visit this grizzly game designer, and he would always have one question. Mark, when are we making a game again? And like every year, no matter what's happening in his life, he would come visit me. And, uh, and I told him in 2021, I'm, I'm ready. I miss it. And we started calling up our social network. And suddenly, we have a team before any funding. Yeah. <laughs> and before even knowing what game we're going to work on. All right. And, but I knew just the energy was electric. We were just so happy to see each other. You know, we're, we're just hugging each other and we're like, let's do it again. Let's build something great, but let's do it differently this time. You know, let's, let's set up the company differently. Let's make sure that people have overwhelming number of stock options and share and ownership in the company. So there were some very unusual things that we did, um, you know, so that I always tell people when you join Osra Games, I hope this is the last game company you work for, for these two reasons. One, you're going to share in our success. Two, you never want to work anywhere else. And I need that. And so, for example, we set up the comp structure for the company. It's an unusual comp structure. Um, we provide and pay for the full healthcare, the full healthcare, by the way, great healthcare. And so I believe that if you take care of people, what's around their life, and you support that, and you fulfill that, they can become the best creative builder, you know, here at Osra Games, if you unlock that for them. And so our comp structure early on, even before we had funding, <laughs> we had these grand philosophies, and we have stuck with that. So so and, the, this unusual uh, comp structure is that you have you're, you're huge amounts of equity earned out, as well as complete, full, 100% paid <laughs> medical and, you know, the, the benefits. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Great. Correct. And so then you take the, so you've got the team, you've got the passion, you've got a new philosophy, you know, a, a familiar but unique uh, design for your company, uh, and and you're ready to now. You go for you go to build. Are you building a prototype first? Are you raising capital first? Or you're deciding where your what your vision is? What's the where where do you go next? You know, I probably should share some things, but I'll, I'll share them anyway. <laughs> so our PR team is, hey, should probably talk about that. But <laughs> this, you know, we could talk about. When I first came back, um, I knew we we're going to do an RPG game. I knew we we're going to do another collectibles and combat RPG. I just didn't know the theme. I didn't know how much production quality we we're going to put into it. Uh, but what I did know was this. I gave a test early on to people. It was like the first 12 employees. And I said this. Do you want to make a game that, that hits a niche audience and serves them well? 
or do you want to make a game that serves this larger audience and serves them well? What inspires you? What I was really asking was, what is your, you know, what is your aspiration for the scale of the game you want to build? You know, how much of it, how much energy do you have? And so everyone picked the most ridiculous, biggest game you could think of. And they were so inspired by that. And here's what I learned from this. Great people are attracted to great vision or great mission. Mm -hmm. And that's what I learned from that exercise. And so I go, okay. So we have to one-up Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. You know, that game's made about 1.5 million gross. I was like, we have to one-up this thing. How in the hell do we do that? You know, we can't just create a derivative product from there, a plus one it, and suddenly we hit it, right? Yeah. And so we interrogated what that meant, what great meant. And so I share that because initially I thought 15 to $20 million was enough to build our game at the very early days. And so, you know, in our seed and C plus round, we raised a total of about $28 million. Um, so we closed $15 million in, a, uh, in April with Andreessen Horowitz as a lead at NFX. Great partners there, by the way. Um, and then they, Andreessen Horowitz decided to double down in December of last year with an additional $10 million. And, and that closed within about three weeks. Wow. And so they saw the progress of the game, but I think more than anything else, they appreciated the thinking that goes into making a game. And perhaps it stood out to them as unique, because here's what happened. I was asked to provide an update in November at Andreessen Horowitz. I thought, you know, whatever, four to five people are going to show up. And uh, it was funny. I was 15 minutes late. Ben Horowitz, the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, showed up. And 26 people from Andreessen Horowitz showed up. (laughs) Wow. I went on there and I gave a master class on how to build one of these games. Um, And I went into detail about how to build these different systems and what specific KPIs they serve. And at what point in the player's journey they serve, in addition to some new novel concepts that we had invented. And so an hour after that call, they said, we're interested in leading your series C+. We can have everything wired and funded in two weeks. My goodness. And so that happened rather rapidly. And I'm very grateful. So Ariana Simpson led that. Uh, John Lai from Andreessen Horowitz and Gigi Levy-Weiss led that from Andreessen Horowitz and NFX. And so in October of last year, the full scope and weight of the game that we wanted to build was coming into focus. And we prototyped the game that we wanted to build, and we completed the prototype at the end of December. We polished it in January and February and go, yes. This is the game that we want to build uh, on mobile first, then PC. And then <clears throat> zoom it out now. You know, we're going to need probably twice as much as we've raised to build the game that, that we believe um, can really deliver on the promise of why we came together. And so it has evolved. 
their process of discovery and validation and a, an extensive amount of research. So we've created a 20 to 30 page research document of our own, a research memo uh, about, you know, one of the largest paradigm shifts that are happening in gaming right now. And this paradigm shift you're teasing us with is? Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the global gaming market, let's first start there. It's anywhere from $185 million worldwide if you include in-app purchases and general sales, but not ad revenue. If you include ad revenue, it's about 215, 220 billion. So anyway, it's anywhere from 185 to 220 billion. What's really interesting about this revenue is that 50% of it comes from mobile. But that's not where it's really interesting. That's interesting in itself. Is <clears throat> RPGs, they only make up about seven to ten percent of downloads on mobile, but they make up a third of all gross revenue. Hmm. In other words, they have the highest um, aggregate spend on a per user basis over the lifetime. And so that's interesting. So just let that part for a moment, that little tidbit of information. Here's what's happening. So Justin, looking at you, we're probably around the same age. And so we saw what happened on mobile in the early days. And here's what happened on mobile in the early days specifically for RPGs, and even more specifically for my genre that I specialize in. Early days, there were mostly text-based RPGs, right? They were very simple-looking games, but they were mathematically complex. I call that Generation 1. Generation And Generation 1 only lasted about two years, and it cost about a half a million dollars to make. And so when I say the generation only lasted two years, I mean the peak life cycle for that cycle of games. Then generation two came. And generation two, what it brought was a 2D iconic interface, icons, and animated battles. Not interactive, animated. I call that generation two. And those games cost anywhere from a couple million to a bit more than that, six or seven million dollars. That cycle lasted about two to three years. I'm talking specifically free-to-play. Then Generation 3 came out in 2013 out of China, where you still had the 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 user interface, which was a menu of 2D icons, right? Right. And the battles were turn-based and interactive. That came out of China. And then it was fast-followed by Come to Us and Summoner's War. In 2014. And then Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes was launched in 2015 as the first third generation in the Western markets. Then that game was copied and inspired Raid Shadow Legends and Marvel Strike Force in 2018. And so the third generation of RPGs lasted about eight years. Hmm. And so if you're going to make a third generation, um, RPG, don't do it. <laughs> because, because the fourth generation is already here. And the fourth generation also came out of China in September of 2020, and it's called Jinshin Impact. 
It's a collectibles and combat RPG. Followed by Honkai Star Rail. And these games generate over $100 million a month. So here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is, this is the largest paradigm shift in gaming. And I'm going to enumerate why in just a moment. Um, I believe, too, this will be the final generation of collectibles and combat RPGs. Let me bring some receipts. Hey, get hit me. 15 to 20 years ago, something miraculously happened for console and PC games. And that was, there was a major breakthrough we all take for granted. We don't even pay attention to it anymore. The camera changed 15 to 20 years ago to behind the head of a character. Instant immersion. And it's one of the lowest common denominators that have survived the test of time for two decades. That's coming to mobile. Interesting. And so you have these confluences of technology on mobile has reached the point where it's more powerful than the previous generation of consoles. Xbox 360, my phone is more powerful than that. And so your phones are effectively consoles now. That doesn't mean that the play patterns are the same, they're not. But it's to say that the production quality and what you can do has changed. And so <clears throat> these fourth generation games are out-monetizing and out-retaining the third generation of established games that are on the market by four to six X on a per user basis. And in the retention in some cases are two times higher. Here's the bad news. These games are very expensive to make. Yeah, I knew what was coming there. <laughs> they cost anywhere from 45. That assumes you make no mistakes to over $55 million to make. That's one. Two, you must have a very experienced team that knows how to build a free-to-play collectibles and combat RPG game team. Otherwise, you learn the wrong lessons. And thirdly, they take three to four years to make. And so the barriers to entry for fourth generation collectibles and combat RPG are high, very high. Does this sound familiar? Yep. Consoles went this. Mm -hmm. And so this paradigm shift is the largest paradigm shift I have ever seen in my life. And so it creates an opportunity if you know what you're doing and you have the resources and you have the time to do some really incredible time to innovate and really establish leadership. And that's what Azra Games is looking to establish. I can see uh, where uh, A16Z was impressed by your pitch. Uh, you're, you've, you've got a high moat, you've got an experienced team, and an incredibly well monetized uh, category that you have a decent chance of dominating. That seems like exactly the kind of thing they are excited to invest in. Yes, yes. Um, so so the, um, all of that, uh, makes a ton of sense and it's it's a thing that you can see now thanks to this deep dive we've gone through the stepping stones from the skills you began to hone as a child and building your own worlds and dungeons and dragons to the 
yogurt shop started game studio and building and building those teams there all the way up to the 1.5 billion dollar category of uh you know the with the category defining star wars uh galaxies and now uh to what you're building here and i know there's another piece to this which i'm eager to to dig into so you know obviously i i i know collectibles games pretty well uh in a in in you know different category slightly but a lot of overlap and i i think that the new uh, Web three, you know, NFT collectible objects thing has become a hot button subject in the communities, and I think that's also part of the premise of what you guys are building. So I'd love to dig into your philosophy of collectibles and potentially how that plays a role. Sure. So, and <clears throat> I I spend a lot of my time. I'm a um, I'm an I'm, I'm an introvert, and I was a very extreme awkward kid. And I'm still an introvert, so I spend a lot of time watering my garden. And that's where I have a lot of my breakthrough thinking. And so I like to create frameworks and architect frameworks. And I work very closely with our co-founder, Travis, um, I'm going to butcher his last name, Bordeaux. He's, he's a French last name. And so I have these crazy ideas and I run them by him because he, he has such a brilliant engineer mind. And, you know, he is a loyal opposition in terms of thinking, quality of thinking. And so I came up with this construct for Web3, you know, called the two-funnel system. And it's a solution um, that, that I was able to develop while watering my garden. And it goes something like this. Using the philosophy of fun, and I looked at Web3. I asked myself, what is the fantasy in Web3? And you know what it is? It's wealth. And speculation is the activity of what you do to, to achieve your wealth fantasy. In other words, it's extrinsically rewarding. I go, okay, got it. Using the philosophy of fun, project legends, which is our ninth collectibles and combat RPG. What is the self-actualization fantasy? It's intrinsic. It's power. Therefore, to build a game, you must first recognize the aspirations of each participant's base. Then design two different funnels where they don't interfere with each other's activities. So you must bifurcate the game in such a way that you serve each one of their needs without them hurting each other. I'll leave it at there because I don't want to give away too much other than you can see how that was created. So that's one. Two, what really profoundly disturbed me <clears throat> was when you think of earning assets within a game what people are really saying is they're exchanging their labor their time and they're tokenizing their time that's what's really happening and so if that is true which i believe is true then we run across what i call the time value paradox so that's a phrase that i, I invented and first shared at gdc earlier this year and the time value paradox goes something like this. 
Justin, you make $1,000 an hour. My name is Mark. I live in Weejongbu in the 70s and 80s, and I make a dollar an hour. We both play our, my game. And in 10 hours, you achieve and earn the Emerald Sword of Doom. I, too, have earned the Emerald Sword of Doom. I then list my NFT in the marketplace for 25 cents. You're going to see that. And you're going to either be really pissed off that your time is devalued to 25 cents, or you're going to be short-term delighted that you can have it for 25 cents. So you're going to buy all the NFTs that I sell to you or put in the marketplace. However, here's what's going to happen. You have completely short-circuited the process of, 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 of earning competency. Yeah. You've optimized the fun, the fun out of your game. That is correct. And worse, for Web3, the time value paradox, basically the TLDR, is because there is a, a different value of surplus time around the world, your NFTs will drive towards zero in terms of price. The time value paradox in my opinion, is one of the most important concepts in Web3, but yet no one talks about it. And hopefully, well, here's the good news. There's a solution, a mathematical solution, but I'm not going to share the solution here. Oh, come on now. You can't tease us like that. <laughs> this is just your secret sauce. <laughs> you just don't want to give it up, huh? <laughs> and so Osra Games, first and foremost, is a game company that makes traditionally entertaining fun games, first and foremost. So <laughs> to make any of this work, these two concepts that I've shared, you must first build a game. If you're free to play, that is Web2 competitive and world-class. You have to do that to reach a large audience. Okay, to reach a large audience. You first have to do that. Once you've established that, you can then enable Web3 interfaces to help drive more value for certain players that are playing your game, but also a new player base who plays games differently. And so I think most game developers have this backwards, or they used to, but this has always been consistent since the foundation and founding of our company. Is because you have to first deliver the engine that is intrinsically rewarding that people will share with their friends before you can build anything else. And so that has never changed. And we continue to be an entertainment first driven company. Yeah. Well, I, I hear you there and I 100% agree that, you know, it's got to be fun. I think that there is a this is a tough problem to solve, uh, and uh, I guess you've only teased us that you have a solution. I think that not only is there the time value paradox as a problem as you discussed, but there is also the um, the challenge that when you incentivize people with extrinsic rewards, it actually takes away from the joy 
of the activity itself. There's plenty of studies that back this up, right? The more that you give people, yes. you know, you give, yes. you, you know, imagine you're offering your grandma a hundred dollars to cook you Thanksgiving dinner, right? That's it's frank. It's insulting, right? It's, that's not even the thing that you would want to be doing. And even my own experience, when I was making a lot of money, I played, you know, magic competitively. And that's how I made a living and paid my way through college. The game became less fun. I was playing for money. Um, you know, I still enjoyed it, but it definitely reduced that. And so this play to earn philosophy that's come around, you know, there are, there are good aspects to it, but I think it's a real trap in many ways that it, uh, it takes a lot of great design thinking to get around. Um, I totally agree with that, Justin. And we talk a lot about at least web three. When I say we, I don't mean you and me just in general. Mm -hmm. um, we talk a lot about, you know, how do we own more the next million? Or how do we onboard the next billion? Forget forget the billion people. How do we onboard the next quarter of a million? The next hundred million? Yeah, I'm not hundred million. The next hundred thousand, the next million people. And you don't do that, in my opinion, by 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 having a culture of speculation and it being a wealth fantasy. Because here's the here's the deal. That fantasy to a large degree is already served in the stock market with day traders. How many day traders do you know? Not many. And so it, it, there is a marketplace for that, but it's a tiny marketplace. And so if we want to onboard, you know, the next hundred thousand, the next million, we have to do that with something, in my opinion, is a bridge, which is a traditionally entertaining product that onboards them. And so, I, I, yeah, this is, you know, when I, you know, last year when I was seeing a lot of game developers, you know, do these early token bits before the game's out, these early in-game assets, I just scratched my head. Um, and I said to myself, they have never clearly made a game before because what they think they're building, and you and I both know this, is going to radically change in about eight months. Yes. Yes. Everybody <laughs> yeah. that's pre-selling the thing that's not even ready and not tested and not iterated <laughs> is, yeah, it, I saw a lot of that. And I think it's part of why there was a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths is that people did not think fun first. They didn't come with a product that was actually designed with the, you know, the actual player in mind. It was more about the speculator. Uh, and I think that that's been a, it's been a real problem for the community. So I am, uh, I, I'm eager to learn more. Um, I know you, you know, we're running low on time here, so I want to be, I want to be respectful. Uh, there's, I would, I would normally be prodding you a lot more on details on some of these things we're leaving hanging, but, uh, for people that want to find out, uh, through your games, uh, they want to learn and play more, uh, what's the best place for them to come find you. And, uh, and if there's any other messages or things you want to share, uh, before we close, go, go ahead. The floor is yours. Justin, I just want to say what a great honor it is that we you know, we're able to spend more time together. I've gotten to know you a lot more. Um, and I am so grateful for that. And, um, I would love for us, you know, to, to, to be friends in the industry and spend more time together. So I feel like we have a lot in common. We have a lot of shared values in common and there aren't many, um, builders that I've met in the industry where I felt that type of connection to. So I, I well, first I want to express that. And, and, and two, I just want to say to, you know, to everyone who aspires to build a game, um, just know, I know how hard it is. I hope that through today's podcast, you, you found some interesting things, but to reach us, the easiest way is follow my Twitter. 
It's uh, Twitter, I think, dot com forward slash, or is it X now? Yeah, I don't even know. I think <laughs> both work, but I, I can't follow it anymore. <laughs> and then there's osregames.com. And we will likely reveal the name of Project Legends in Q1 of next year. So we have a really cool name um, that we have in the works. We have our game itself will be mostly functional complete at the end of this year. And I can't wait to show you what we're building and working on. I'm just so excited, um, you know, with what we're building here at Oscar Games. And thank you so much for, you know, Justin, for making the time and the platform for us to talk. Yeah, no, the honor is mine, man. Uh, I, I appreciate your vulnerability, uh, your sharing, uh, your passion. Uh, your ability to communicate ideas that are very complex and deep in a simple way is something I appreciate. I, that is so hard to do well, uh, and you did it multiple times. So I know that everybody listening got a ton of value out of this. I can't wait to see what comes uh, from your projects. And yeah, I would love to uh, have some more time to connect. I know that I can continue to learn a lot from you. So thanks so much. Same. And I can't wait till we get to see each other again. Me too, man. See you later, Justin. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step -step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.